So how have you been coping? Pico Iyer left his lockdown in Japan to take care of family back in California. He's noticed how most people in Japan viewed the pandemic as yet another situation that you just had to take in stride. They don't see these kind of crises as shocks or insults or aberrations. They think of them almost as the way life always is. Eric Weiner traveled to the places where great philosophers and thinkers lived. From Athens to the Alps, India to Walden Pond, he recommends letting the wisdom of the ages add depth to your world. We travel and we philosophize for essentially the same reason, and that is to see the world through fresh eyes. And hear how Fiji plays a leading role in the South Pacific. Fiji, to us here in the United States, seems like such a small country, but actually, in the context of the South Pacific, Fiji is kind of a leader. It's one of the bigger countries. Hear what you can discover in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The island paradise of Fiji is also a major influence in the South Pacific. We'll find out about Fiji a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Plus, author Eric Weiner tells us what traveling to the homes of the world's most important philosophers taught him about life. Let's start by checking in with friend of the show, author Pico Iyer, to hear how he's faring during this pandemic summer. Pico was raised in England and Southern California by parents who were both philosophers and religious scholars. We caught up with him in Santa Barbara. Pico, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Real delight. It's always a highlight to talk to you, Rick. Thank you. Now, Pico, you split your life between California and Japan. Uh, Tell us how you are dealing with this um, crisis. Well, I spent the first half of the pandemic in Japan, and I'm almost embarrassed to say that things were quite beautiful there in the sense that uh, things looked very much the same as normal. Um, As you know from your many trips there, people wear masks much of the time in Japan anyway, literally and figuratively, to protect others. Mm. So if you're in a bus in Japan in November, usually there'll be 40% of the people wearing masks. So that part was not different. And as you also know, Japan has managed to avoid the worst of the virus. So Mm -hmm. even in the middle of April, I was playing ping pong every day with my neighbors. 80-year-old men were diving across the hard floor of the wooden gym to hit back their forehands. And really walking around, everything seemed the same as usual, except, of course, no foreign tourists. And I think the other thing about Japan, which is one reason I moved there, is, as you know, they're very hysterical and uncomplaining and, and resilient. And so they've been dealing with challenges for 1,400 years there, and they don't see these kind of crises as shocks or insults or aberrations. They think of them almost as the way life always is. They're used to earthquakes and tsunamis and forest fires. Mm. So in that way, too, it was quite a calm place to be. And then I flew back in the middle of the pandemic to um, Santa Barbara, where I am now, because my mother, who's now 89, had just come out of the hospital, and I knew I had to be with her. And California did look very different from usual, but in certain ways, people seemed thoughtful and focused and reflective and kind. And in some ways, uh, the conversations I had with people here on on the telephone, if I was in in the supermarket, were richer than they might be otherwise. I'm lucky again in both places because I'm in the small towns that mm-hmm. are not as affected as big cities and um, you know towns of privilege. So everybody was most concerned about those without a roof over their heads or without right. family nearby, without jobs. I had it pretty lucky, I think. You know, Pico, you mentioned in Japan people are accustomed to wearing masks both literally and figuratively. And I cringed at that because I don't 
want to have a world where we wear literal masks, but I would want even less to have where we all have figurative masks, and maybe we'll have more literal masks in our future. But what you're saying is when you got back to California, people might have been wearing masks, but they were being a little more honest and open with each other. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Um, I think in Japan, the figurative masks are seen as a form of social duty. I think people, Mm -hmm. you know, as you know, the Japanese define themselves by the the whole unit, the neighborhood or the country or the company. And they feel, well, everybody around me is suffering. And so my job is to make people feel better. I don't want to inflict my own suffering on people who are already going through a lot. I want to offer them what I can in the way of Mm. help and warmth and, and, and support. And so actually, I like that quality about Japan. They're accentuating the positive, and, and also they're not rattled by things. Um, sometimes very small things will come along, and, and in other places I'll see people get very shocked and caught up mm. in the excitement of the moment, and Japan has a much more level surface, which makes it in some ways a, a calmer place. You're right that they're not good at facing up to some of the darker places in no. life. And, dark spots in history, but as a, as a way, a sort of social lubricant, I think it, it makes for a, a, at least a cheerful atmosphere. And it's sort of related to being considerate socially. Exactly. It's a, it's, yeah. That's right. It's, it's an act of thinking about the other person before yourself and, and recalling. Mm. You, you, we all remember in the tsunami in 2011 when 18,500 people died. And when people watched the footage on TV, they were surprised that the Japanese were so quiet and uncomplaining. And I think that's because even though one person had lost two people very dear to her, she knew that everybody around her had had losses also. And so she didn't want to compound that grief. Pico Ayers on the line with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Pico divides his year between a small apartment with his wife in suburban Japan and looking after his aging mother in Santa Barbara, California. Pico shares observations about life in Japan in his latest books, Autumn Light, and A Beginner's Guide to Japan. His other titles include The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere, and The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. His website is picoirejourneys.com. And Pico, when I'm thinking about the introspection that comes with being locked down, I would imagine you've had a lot of time to be thoughtful and observant about the character of people. Uh, With your split life between Japan and the United States, and then you even write about Canada's approach, which is different than south of the border here in the United States. I think Canada does a very good job of mixing hope and history and coming up with a very realistic sense of how to make a better world. When I was a little boy growing up in England, I was so excited to come to the U.S. because it is the land of possibility and it is the land where you can change everything. And I was so glad to learn that gospel from the United States. But then when I got to about the age of 30, I thought, well, I've learned a lot about possibility. Now I need to learn about reality. And there I need to go to a much older culture And so I thought that the U.S. is still to some extent about the pursuit of happiness, which is a great lesson to be spread around the world. And Japan is based in that Buddhist thought of the reality of suffering, that life isn't easy, and that we have to make our peace with the difficulties that come along, which is, I think, one reason why it's well-equipped for a moment like this. And so having Mm. enjoyed everything that the U.S. had to offer, I thought, well, Japan would be a good complement. Because this crisis is confronting me with the opposite of what my life is all about. Uh, In a lot of ways, this crisis for me is therapy for somebody who's addicted to being productive. (laughs) 
and it's tough to slow down. And and you write books all about slowing down. Uh, your book, The Art of Stillness, is a, a real inspiration in that regard. Uh, you know, this is kind of humbling, and maybe that's a silver lining, that there's more to life than increasing its speed. Yes. I mean, I've noticed in the last maybe 10 years, most of my friends are saying, I don't have time. I don't have time to see my family. I don't have time to take a walk. I don't have time to listen to music. And suddenly, as you say, we've all been given maybe more time than we know what to do with. And of course, as you say, I'm lucky because as a writer, my job always involves social distancing. I'm always, I've been working from home for 34 years. So in that sense, this season hasn't been so different for me. And I know your job involves a lot of travel, much more than mine does. But one of the things that I've got out of these last couple of months is being forced to stay still, remembering what I really cherish and remembering what really sustains us and me. And for me, actually, that's a lot of travel. So these last three months have helped me to appreciate travel, not to take it for granted. And actually, in my case, to look forward to the trips that I think will start taking place again. In a few months, it'll be more expensive and some people will be more apprehensive. But I don't think travel is going to end. No. And I think also we can take that wonder of travel and the beauty of travel and we can employ those skills without getting on an airplane. Uh, Have you thought much about embracing the traveling spirit uh, while walking around the block or or just enjoying your garden? (laughs) I love that, Rick. As ever, you've actually taken the words out of my mouth because when my wife and I were stuck in our apartment in Japan for many weeks, we started taking long walks in every direction, which we've never done, though we've lived in that apartment for 27 and a half years. And we found just five minutes down the road beautiful bamboo forest with flowering cherry trees all over, nightingales teaching their young to sing, just three blocks from our apartment. And we hadn't found it in more than a quarter of a century. And just as you say, um, I've always felt that the, the beauty of travel has less to do with the destination than with the fresh and open eyes we bring to it. And that mm-hmm. indeed in our own neighborhoods, there are wonders that would be amazing to people coming from elsewhere. And it's just a matter of reminding ourselves of that. And as you say, I think this moment has done that. Here, as I'm sitting in my mother's house in Santa Barbara, my parents have had this house for more than 50 years. And for the first time in 50 years, I've taken long walks up the mountain road and thought to myself, my goodness, this is one of the most beautiful places I've seen on earth. But as you were saying, I've spent my time flying off to other beautiful places and neglecting the one in my backyard. So I've been grateful to this moment for opening my eyes to what is really always around us. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pico Iyer. Pico's uh, many books are inspirations. Uh, One that is pertinent to our situation today would be The Art of Stillness. You know, Pico, I keep looking for silver linings in this dark cloud, and one of them might be an awareness that the crises that will be confronting us in the future are not the conventional this country against that country, But these crises will be blind to borders. We won't be defended by military hardware and and strong walls, but by science and by an understanding that we have to work together and uh, we should invest in soft power and and building bridges. Have you been thinking in any terms of a silver lining where maybe our world can can be less at odds and and more interested in win-win solutions instead of win-lose solutions? Well, yes, I've been sobered and in some ways inspired by the fact that nearly all the globe, rich and poor, east and west, dark and 
less dark, um, have been going through much the same thing, so in different mm-hmm. circumstances these last few months. And as you say, I think most of our problems now are global and can only be solved globally. The virus is one example. Mm-hmm. Climate change is another. Mm-hmm. Um, the refugee crisis. Um, it can only be done across borders. And I think the world is waking up to that. Uh, as you know, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time for 45 years now talking to the Dalai Lama. And I've been in touch with him and his office the last few weeks. And he's been a Again, stressing more and more what he calls the big we, and that that, that the viruses, as you said, don't respect borders. They don't make distinctions. That means that we can't respect borders or make distinctions in our response to that, and that um, that we can only solve this together. Three beautiful words: the big we. That's a key to our future. Pico Iyer, thanks so much. I just love connecting with you. You're the the embodiment of the traveling spirit in a way that brings people together and gives us a, a better understanding of, of where we are and who we are. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure, and thank you for all you do. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Bye, Pico. Bye-bye. You can listen to Pico Iyer's earlier appearances on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a link to our archives with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. 877-333-7425. That's our number, and we'll be exploring Fiji in just a bit. But next, Eric Weiner tells us about his global scavenger hunt in search of the wisdom of the world's greatest philosophers. When we travel, it's fun to see the world from a different perspective. Eric Weiner sees places in relation to the work of great philosophers who once lived there. Eric traveled to the places 14 of these great thinkers inhabited from ancient Greece to China and Japan to Paris. He followed the footsteps of history's greatest thinkers, some ancient and some modern, to look for what they have to offer for living in today's unsettled times. Eric Weiner writes about what he found in his latest book, The Socrates Express. Eric, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Rick. You know, I love this idea of a connection between travel and philosophy. Describe how you see them connected. I think they stem from the same motivation. I think we travel and we philosophize for essentially the same reason, and that is to see the world through fresh eyes. You know, the writer Henry Miller has this wonderful quote about travel that is is my all-time favorite. He said, one's destination is never a place but a new way of looking at things. And that's really what travelers do, certainly, but it's also what philosophers do. I mean, philosophers are not scientists. They're not... You know, they're not usually religious thinkers. They're people who see the world a little bit differently from the rest of us. I like that idea about fundamentally good travel is a way to see things differently. Philosophy is a way to see things differently. And many philosophers that you feature in your book, The Socrates Express, were actually great travelers. They were. Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, traveled by foot. He walked everywhere and anywhere he could. He would walk 10, 15, 20 miles a day, think nothing of it. Then there were others like Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher who took trains all over Europe. Uh, He was a real vagabond that way, but he hated trains. Mm. And he said that he had to pay for one day's train journey with three days recovery time. So they didn't all necessarily love travel, but a lot of them did travel. That's right. Your book is called The Socrates Express for a reason, for you Riding the train is its a big part of your book. It seems like you find train travel leads us to seeing things, being yeah, thoughtful. Can, it's a thoughtful mode of travel. Exactly. I can think on a train. I cannot think 
on an airplane up there at 30,000 feet. I cannot think on a bus. I can think on a train. There's something about the rhythmic motion of a train, something about the speed at which a train travels that enables me to stop and think. And it's not only me. I mean, many great ideas have been birthed on trains, but all all sort of thinking takes place on trains and in train stations. The yeah. Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein said basically that all serious philosophical problems must be addressed in a train station, um, that there's something about that combination of kinetic activity and stillness, you know, if you've ever sat in train stations. Kinetic energy and stillness. I love it because I I sit in train stations a lot, and I find there's a white noise of, hey, there's a Mm -hmm. big world out there, but there's also that I'm just, I'm staying here because I know I've got to stay here a while, but I'm swimming, I'm bathing in this white noise of, hey, there's a big world, it's fascinating, let's embrace it. Right, and I, I will arrive for a train six hours early and, you know, sit in the train station with my coffee and mm-hmm. my books and just mm-hmm. uh, sit there and, and watch the world go by and think. It's interesting because when I do my research for my guidebooks in Europe, I far prefer connecting two towns by a long train ride than a short flight. And when Absolutely. I, when I sit on that yeah. train, I've done long bus rides and I don't get much accomplished on a bus ride. But from a real writing point of view... My train ride is my free time for my brain to really just focus. That's very interesting. Now, in your book, uh, The Socrates Express, you did a fair amount of um, travel on trains to write the book. Explain how the, the train riding helped you actually write The Socrates Express. This thing called philosophy uh, is misunderstood. Philosophy is not some arcane academic subject with a bunch of fancy words. It really, I wanted to bring it back to its root. Philosophy means love of wisdom, and a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom. But you distinguish between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is is like winning a trivia contest. I I do not aspire to win in trivial pursuits. I aspire to be wise. Right. So knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. So (laughs) that is the difference. And we have plenty of knowledge slash information slash data right now. Maybe you're holding one of these devices in your hand right now where you have access to all of human knowledge. That might make Rick Steves knowledgeable, but it doesn't necessarily make him wise. That's where philosophy comes into play. I can't think about an idea without attaching a place to it, Rick. So mm-hmm. I, I had to go to where they thought or where they died or where they were born or someplace that just epitomized their philosophy. And then I thought, well, how do I get from point A to point B? I made a point wherever and whenever possible to take a train, even if it was a very long train ride. You took a train from Athens to Copenhagen. You, you took right. uh, long-distance trains in the United States. I did, and, and you through were... India as well. And I rode the New York City subway's F train for a solid week, <laughs> 10 hours a day, longer than most mental health professionals would suggest <laughs> you do that. Your book, The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. What is the book, just in a nutshell? Okay, so the, the book is essentially, and this sounds grandiose, but it's true. It's a guidebook to life, to living. I've divided it up into three sections, dawn, noon, and dusk. So the first section are chapters and philosophers that tell us about the things we need to know when we're just starting off in life, uh, how to wonder, how to listen, how to walk, things like that. Noon is something in, as a young adult or a middle-aged person we need to know, like how to be kind, how to fight, and skills like that. And then there's dusk, uh, which is how to have no regrets, how to cope, hmm. how to grow old, and yes, how to die all seen through the eyes of one particular philosopher. So I try to introduce you to each of these philosophers in a way that is stripped of 
fancy academic jargon really down to earth and say, here, meet Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, or Mm -hmm. meet Montaigne, the French philosopher. We're going to get to know what he said about this one particular question. So each chapter is a question. One thing I learned from your book, I gained a respect for philosophy. I mean, I've got a respect for travel because it opens me up to the world. And you explained how philosophy complements this travel awareness and how philosophy describes the world not as it is, but as it could be. And also how wisdom, not knowledge, but wisdom is portable and it transcends place and it transcends time. And you illustrate that by choosing 14 philosophers who some of them lived in the ancient world, some of them lived in our lifetime, some of them lived in the Eastern Hemisphere, and some of them lived in the Western Hemisphere. And it doesn't matter, right? I mean, unlike... wisdom is portable. I love that concept. Wisdom Wisdom is is portable. portable. Knowledge is obsolete. I mean, that that newfangled phone that you have nearby or in your hand, Mm -hmm. I guarantee in 10 years it's going to be obsolete. But the wisdom that you have about how to live, how to deal with other people, how to act kindly... Um, how to cope with difficult circumstances. I mean, the the ancients, they celebrated life and they suffered life and for the exact same reasons hmm. as us. They're not as far away as we think they are. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Eric Weiner. And Eric recommends how we can learn from the great philosophers and even travel to the places where they lived to learn what they have to teach us for coping with the din of our modern life. Eric describes how his own adventures are doing just that in his book called The Socrates Express. Eric's website is ericweinerbooks.com, and Weiner is W-E-I-N-E-R. Eric, you talk about 14 philosophers, and I know so little about philosophers, and your book was just an adventure to read. Take me on a quick tour, and um, let's just talk about a couple of the philosophers and, and how they marry this idea of travel and philosophy and uh, uh, describing the world not as it is, but as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, Theroux. So you probably, if I'm guessing correctly, some point in, in high school may have had Thoreau's uh, Walden on Walden Pond thrust at you <laughs> and told to read it. Right. Um, many high school kids have, but he was he was much more than that. He was uh, not just this guy off in the woods, you know, doing this crazy experiment, living off the grid before the grid existed. He really was a visionary in the literal sense of the word in that he really was interested in how to see better. He would spend hours looking at Walden Pond and he would change his angle this way and that and he would go on a boat and he went underwater and he would even invert his head between his legs. He would just sort of go upside down and look at the pond from that perspective. And he was a very patient watcher, and he would see things that, you know, we're talking in the 19th century here, mid-1800s, he would see things that the townspeople in Concord, Massachusetts did not see because he played the angles, he slowed down. He believed we only see what we're prepared to see, and he tried to be prepared to see more than most of us. You know, I remember walking my son around the block when he was just big enough to leave the yard and actually walk. And I just followed him, and I let him direct my attention to little things that I had walked by for years and never noticed. And there is that whole unappreciated world of things that we can see and appreciate and consider that we just have to know how to see. Isn't that true? Right. And seeing, we we have this idea that when we 
you know, say you're looking at, what are you looking at right now, Rick, may I ask? I'm looking at the cover of your book, which is... Okay, let's see, all right? That's a fine (laughs) thing to look at. You're looking at the cover of my book, and we think, as you look at it, your eye is taking a photograph of the book, like your smartphone does, and relaying it to your brain. It doesn't work like that at all. In fact, um, you're just getting raw data from this thing that you don't know is a book, and your your brain sort of interrogates the data it gets and says, well, this looks like something I've seen before. Uh, I'm going to call it a book. And this color looks familiar. Let's call it yellow. So it's a way of seeing that we see much more as a conversation in a way than we do as photography. Huh. And Thoreau knew this. He, he may not have known the science behind it, but he knew that that is how we really see. A recognition that you can walk around the block like it's the first time ever. You can look at your book like it's the first time ever. You can gaze out the window of your airplane and see things that you never saw before if you just recognize that uh, you could take a little bit of philosopher approach to things, I guess. Let's talk about Nietzsche. The bad boy of philosophy, German-born. He was unhappy, but all the philosophers are, are unhappy to one extent or another. They were all unsatisfied with their lives. And he he didn't want to be a minister's son like his father. He wanted to study philosophy, but he was sick. He had migraines and stomach upset. He was a sick young man, and he was looking for the perfect climate where he could do his philosophizing, where he could think and be relieved of these symptoms. And he found it in this little town called Sils Maria, up in the Swiss Alps, not too far from San Moritz. Beautiful place. I went there, high up, And this is where Nietzsche would return every year and spend the summers there. And he would walk and he would think. And it's where he came up with some of his most amazing ideas. You know, I love that idea of you went to this little mountain town in the Alps of Switzerland. And you were thinking about how it inspired a great philosopher to share his profound ideas. I love to go to the fjord where Edvard Grieg was inspired to write his music. And I know just the place where he had his little cabin, and I I know just the bench, the book he sat on to make him the right height so he could play the keyboard as he looked out the window and was inspired by that fjord. I know about going to see the water lilies in the ponds that Monet actually designed the pond and the weeping willows and the the Japanese-style bridge and how he was inspired to paint those water lilies. I mean, I know that the gift shop used to be where he would hang his big canvases, and it was so fun to appreciate the art in that spot. Are you saying you can actually appreciate the philosophy with a, a little better angle if you are able to go to the places where that philosophy uh, was inspired? Let's, yeah, let's say it, it focuses the mind. I mean, I don't think there's anything necessarily magical about this one particular lake in this one particular town in Switzerland, but it focuses the mind. I even walked past this one boulder where uh, Nietzsche came up with his huh. idea of eternal recurrence. Nietzsche believed that we repeat our life exactly as it is over and over and over again. It was a form of Groundhog Day before Groundhog Day. Um, In fact, 100 years before the movie, Nietzsche had that thought right in that town, right along this beautiful lake, right beside a boulder. And I was able to sit on that boulder and think about this Ah, wild thought. It's kind of raising the bar for how rewarding the travel is. You, You knew about Nietzsche, you went to the place, and then you recognized, oh, this is where it happened, and you could think about it again. Eric Weiner travels the world in search of life's lessons and the wisdom of the ages in his latest book, The Socrates Express. His website is ericweinerbooks.com. Patrick's on the line in Indiantown, Florida. Hey, Patrick, thanks for your call. Thanks uh, 
for talking to me, Rick and Eric. I was a philosophy major in university and would read a lot of books by Immanuel Kant. And I um, didn't put it together with travel too much, but one time we were in Berlin. I remember going down the main street in Berlin and seeing the sculpture of the books that the Nazis had burned and noticing Immanuel Kant's um, book was in there. And it kind of brought me back because I really enjoyed reading his books and really brought me back to a lot of thoughts of what I had read. I would bet, from a philosopher's point of view, it would almost be a badge of honor to have your books being burned by the Nazis. Yes, I guess you wouldn't want them to like your book. <laughs> I would think that would be one thing for sure. Eric, did you consider Immanuel Kant in your, in your writing? Uh, I, I did, He um, and he, he makes uh, cameo appearances in my book, let's put it that way. Yeah. He's an interesting case because he was the uh, antithesis of these peripatetic philosophers. Immanuel Kant uh, lived his whole life in a town called Konigsberg, which was part of Germany, is now part of Russia, actually. And he was a man of routine. He got up at the same time every day, would smoke one pipe, never more, had the same thing for breakfast. And every afternoon, and I believe it was 12.45 p.m., he would go on a constitutional, uh, a walk around town. And supposedly he was so punctual that the people of Konigsberg could set their watches mm. to say, there goes the philosopher on his walk. And they've renamed that street the Philosopher's Walk. Mm. He was very much a man of habit um, in the utmost way. Mm. He was thinking some very big thoughts, to put it mildly, mm. um, but it's almost like he needed to ground himself in this yeah. routine so he could go off in these flights of fancy. I'm really interested in pleasure activism. For me, there's a lot of hedonism that goes with travel, and Epicurus did some thinking about that. He did, and he is probably, even more than Gandhi, the most misunderstood of philosophers, because when you think of Epicurus today, if you think of him, you might think of that website, what is it, Epicurus, mm -hmm. um, about cooking or cuisine, or to be a small e. Epicurean means someone who indulges in fine wine and food. And this was pretty much the opposite of what the real-life Epicurus, who lived in the 4th century BC in Athens, he believed that we derived the most pleasure from the simplest activities, and the simplest foods. And he came up with a whole taxonomy of pleasure and a sort of hierarchy of what kind of pleasures we should strive for first. So say you've been on a long trek through the desert and you have a glass of water. Well, he would say that's a natural and necessary pleasure. But then you want to have a glass of wine with it. Well, that's natural, but not really necessary. Mm. Well, say after you've had the water and the wine, you want to have a 2,000 bottle of champagne. He, Epicurus would say that's unnatural and unnecessary. And once you've had that champagne, you're hooked on it. And you're now going to become a slave to replicating that pleasure. And he thought that was a tremendous mistake. Wow. And you traveled to Athens and uh, even... I traveled to Athens to the place where he established what he called the Kepos or the garden. And it was kind of like a hippie commune. Yeah. There's not much of it left today, I must say. But at the time, it was outside the city walls of Athens. Huh. And so it was seen as, oh, those Epicureans, they're living out there in the boonies ah. and behind the wall. There was a sign at the entrance to this walled garden that said come and enter here we believe that pleasure is the highest good so rumors started to spread about the epicureans that there were all kinds of orgies and feasts going on in there in fact that was usually not the case maybe occasional orgies and feasts but they were suspicious they did not believe in getting involved in politics they believed in sort of separating yourself from all that 
And I'm all over guidebooks, and your book, The Socrates Express, could be considered a guidebook toward appreciating uh, the work of philosophers, just like a a conventional guidebook would help you travel. Thank you so much, Eric, for um, celebrating wisdom. Thank you, Rick. This was pleasurable in the Epicurean way. Eric's book, The Socrates Express, is scheduled for release on August 25th. Eric Weiner's also written The Geography of Bliss, Man Seeks God, and The Geography of Genius. You can listen to our earlier conversation on that topic from a link with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's go to Fiji next on Travel with Rick Steves. When you're ready to travel, how does the tropical South Pacific sound? Last we checked, the island nation of Fiji had reported only a couple dozen COVID-19 infections, mostly arriving on flights from other countries, and zero deaths from the virus. Fiji is famous for its crystal-clear tropical waters with some of the world's best scuba diving. There's white sand beaches, old-growth forests, river rafting, sugar plantations, and dormant volcanoes you can explore. Fiji is home to vibrant and communal indigenous cultures as well. Minal Hajratwala writes the Moon Guidebook to Fiji after many years of exploring and living in the islands. She joins us from the studios of KERA in Dallas right now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us plan a getaway to Fiji. Minal, could you tell us a little bit about your name? My name is an Indian name, and Fiji is actually about 44% Indian population and uh, the rest indigenous Fijian population. My great-grandfather went to Fiji in 1909, so my family's been there a long time. So when you go to Fiji today, uh, it's a remarkably sort of indigenous society as far as a lot of South Pacific islands go. When did the Indian part of the society enter the scene? In the late 1800s is when the first Indian population arrived in Fiji, and they came as indentured servants under the British Empire. So the Brits did that, didn't they? They brought in people to do their work for them. They did. Uh, Mostly in Fiji, it was to farm the plantations, the sugar plantations, as well as coconut and some other smaller industries. Why didn't they just have the Fijians that they met there do it? Well, the Fijians actually had a very interesting history where they voluntarily joined the British Empire and turned their country over to Britain in order to help them settle some debts. And so, you know, they kept their own land and their own traditions. So they were kind of the elites by this arrangement, and the Brits brought in Indians to do the plantation work. Well, the Fijians had their own traditions of farming and agriculture, and the British wanted to start this new sugar industry Hmm. to make a profit. And so for the sugar industry, that's what they brought the Indians in to do. The Fijians were pretty happy doing their own work. (laughs) Did that plant any long-term problems within the society between the two groups? It did. The populations were very separate for a long time, first under the British by design, and then even after independence in the 1970s, the populations stayed pretty separate and then began to mingle, and the Indian population was more in the towns, and the Fijian population was more in the villages. But you know, they they sort of had this system where the Indians had some economic power and the Fijians had more political power. Hmm. And as that started blending, there was some difficulty. There were a series of coups starting in 1987 after the first Indian prime minister was elected to power. And so, you know, they had a number of rough years in the 1980s and 90s, and now things seem to have settled down. Okay, enough colonial history. Let's talk about tourism. (laughs) You know, there's so many destinations in the South Pacific. I would have a tough time picking which 
island paradise to visit. Uh, What's unique about Fiji? Uh, Fiji, to us here in the United States, seems like such a small country, but actually in the context of the South Pacific, Fiji is kind of a leader. It's one of the bigger countries, and it's really an epicenter for a lot of the cultural institutions, arts, environmental institutions. It's the place where people from many of the other islands go because there's a university, there's medical care. And so it's actually pretty cosmopolitan as a small island country goes. This is kind of where Polynesia and Melanesia meet. Exactly, yes. What does that really mean? Well, it means there's a mix of cultures. So if you look at the majority of the Fijian population, I think folks would say that they are more sort of homogenous in a certain way, but then there are certain islands that are more Melanesian, certain islands whose populations seem more Polynesian. And in the main island, particularly in the capital city, Suva, you do get a mix of populations and you get a lot of different worlds interacting. So it's pretty exciting. There are nightclubs. There are, so that's where, you the, know, that's there, where the action is in the capital That's city. where the action is. And a lot of people from the region go for the action, and a lot of tourists go for the absolute opposite, which is no action whatsoever. Sit on a beach, relax with your coconut drink. I was going to say it's like Bali. I mean, I think Denpasar is the big action city in in Bali, but you don't want to go there if you're a tourist. You want to get off into the paradise beaches and the little villages. Yes, and Fiji is 322 islands, of which about a third are occupied by humans, and a smaller percentage are open for tourism. And so really, you have such a small population across many, many islands, and there are a lot of places you can go if peace and quiet and Mm. not seeing other people is what you want. Well, let's talk practicalities before we dig deeper into Fiji as a tourist destination. It's like 1,300 miles north of New Zealand, and on a global point of view, it seems like it's sort of stuck in the middle of nowhere, but you can access it pretty easy by air. How do you get there from the United States? It's a direct flight from the West Coast, either Los Angeles or San Francisco, nine hours. Hmm. And so that's pretty easy. And a lot of folks go as part of a trip to New Zealand, Australia, and Fiji as a nice little triangle. That puts it in perspective. I mean, it takes us nine hours on a flight to get to Frankfurt. You could choose Fiji instead. Exactly. A very different experience. <laughs> so what's, is there red tape? Do you need a visa or anything like that? No, you get, as an American, you get a visa on arrival. So it's pretty easy. And, um, you know, what about the language barrier? Uh, there's no language barrier. Actually, everyone in Fiji speaks English, if not as their first language, then as their second language, mm-hmm. in addition to whatever their local Fijian or Indian language would be. We're getting to know the Republic of Fiji right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Mino Hajwatwala is the author of The Moon Guidebook to Fiji. Mino, in your book, you note that there are two major islands where most of the people live, and then there's more than 300 other islands scattered across a thousand miles of archipelago. With so many far-flung options, where do you start to plan an itinerary for visiting Fiji? Yeah, that's a great question because there is a lot to see, and no one knows that better than a travel writer who's trying to cover Mm -hmm. the whole country Mm -hmm. in a few weeks. I recommend that people really think about what do they most want to do? Like, how much beach time do they want before they're going to get bored? Do they want to hike? Do they want to surf? Do they want to scuba dive? Do they want to see culture and interact with local folks? And then, based on that, I think there's a lot of really great choices. And for people who want a little bit of everything, 
we have some 10-day and 8-day itineraries that you can try out and adjust to whatever your schedule is. In the Moon Guidebook to Fiji, you lay out a short itinerary which features the garden island of Tava'uni? Yes, Tava'uni. Tava'uni, and then the big island with the coral coast and the capital city of Suva. So why would we uh, prioritize for the garden island? What's there? That itinerary is a great overview um, because you get to see some of the culture and some of the nature. What's beautiful about Tavuni is that it has a lot of endemic species. So Fiji has lots of local uh, native birds, as well as, of course, coral and fish. And Tavuni is a great place to experience all of that. As all of the islands are, it's a volcanic island. It's a small size. You can drive all the way around in half a day. And you can see a range of things. So in the same day, you can be on a beach and uh, take in some waterfalls with some hiking. And you can even go snorkeling or diving in a protected marine reserve. So it's a nice, manageable size of island. Okay, so that would give you your little garden island paradise. And then the, the, the big island has its coral coast in Suva. Let's talk about the coral coast. The coral coast was the first area of Fiji that developed for tourism. So it's got all of the activities. If you want to do parasailing, if you want to do golfing, there's an international golf course designed by Fiji's uh, superstar Vijay Singh. So the Coral Coast is just a hotbed of activities, and families really like those Coral Coast resorts because they're all-inclusive. You can stay one place, and everybody can do their own thing. And a lot of those resorts are very well-developed with kids' clubs and activities where the parents can go off and have their adventure and the kids can have their own separate adventure and be taken care of. PG has such a a vivid and and healthy indigenous culture. Are you going to find that more on the small islands? Where do you go to experience the indigenous culture? Yeah, that's a great question. It's definitely there and much more present or maybe easy to find on the small islands Uh because those are the places that you'll have also indigenous-owned little hotels and residences and accommodations. So chances are your hosts might be local folks. But on the big island, there are three really wonderful experiences. One is a trekking company called Talanoa Treks, Uh which takes people up into the villages. It's co-owned by the villages themselves. The guides are taking you through their own lands. And you stay with families there and really experience the culture through trekking as well as the gorgeous mountain landscapes, lakes, waterfalls that are up in the volcanic center of the big island, Viti Levu. The second way that I really love and recommend is something called the Drua Experience, which is a trip on a double-hulled canoe. These are the traditional Fijian canoes that took people everywhere throughout the islands in the Mm. olden days. And uh, there's a reconstructed canoe that you can go on and learn how to sail it and uh, really experience the sea the way that indigenous folks would have experienced it. Well, it sounds like Coral Coast is kind of like the Cancun of Fiji. And you can make that your resorty, luxurious stop. And then you can side trip inland as if from Cancun, you could side trip into the Yucatan and find actual village life and natural wonders. Is, is that sort of a standard way for wealthy first world tourists to come in and, and have their resort getaway, but also connect with the island from a nature and a, and a cultural point of view? Yes, that's a good way to describe it. And one huge difference between Fiji and a lot of other places is that in Fiji, 87% of the land is owned by indigenous people. So even the big international chain resorts, for example, Mm. they're all leasing their land from 
local tribes. And what that means is that the lease, these are usually 99-year leases. In addition to the lease money, there's profit sharing and there are employment agreements. So generally, the people who are working in your resorts, who are handling your bags and preparing your meals and that you are interacting with as a visitor, are actually the landowners themselves. So you can feel good as a consumer that your money is staying in the community and it's helping the indigenous population of the island you're visiting. Yes, I think you can. And it also, aside from just sort of the feel-good factor, it feels more connected. You know, you get to talk to people and it's not that they learned how to massage somebody from an international chain. They learned it from their mother who learned it from her mother because they've been working with travelers for many generations, and they're on their own land in their own homes. They haven't been displaced in order to make room for you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're diving into the enchanting waters of Fiji's 300 islands right now. Our guest is Minal Hajwatwala. She's the author of The Moon Guidebook to Fiji, and her website is minalhajwatwala.com, M-I-N-A-L, H-A-J-R-A-T-W-A-L-A. You know, when we're thinking about exploring the big island, it sounds like there's just a lot of diversity. You can hike to the crater of a dormant volcano. You talked about rafting down a river, ziplining through old-growth forests, touring sugar plantations. Uh, One thing interesting you mentioned in your book was that for the cost of a day's car rental, you could actually hire a car with a driver, and that seems like a much better option to me. It is, yes. It's really pleasant um, because then you not only have the option to stop and go wherever you want instead of the bus's schedule, but also you have a driver who knows the land and who can be your local guide. I think that makes the island much less stressful and much more informative. And you've got your, your friend, you've got your interpreter, you've got your local guide. You've also got somebody who can help you with the etiquette for connecting with the indigenous uh, people in the villages. Exactly, yes. And there's a very specific uh, way that because the Fijians own their own land, all of the land in Fiji is owned by somebody. And so it's not a place where you can just kind of randomly go hiking up in an unclaimed area. There is no such area. So when you walk onto uh, someone's tribal land, there's a very specific etiquette where you meet the chief and you give a gift and then you're invited to share the space. And you better go by that etiquette or you will be not a very welcome guest. Yeah, you'll be a bit rude. (laughs) You'll be rude, right. Let's talk about the underwater sightseeing because there you don't need to worry about etiquette. Well, in a way you do because the water is also owned by the tribes. Oh, my Um, So, yeah, so each tribe owns its own waters. And what that means is that conservation-wise, it's really great because there's no poaching. There's no kind of way for outsiders to come in and just take stuff Mm -hmm. uh, from the waters. So Fiji's waters are really rich in marine life, and they are protected. So snorkeling Um, is popular and and scuba diving? Snorkeling, diving, and also for folks that are not quite as mobile, there are certain resorts that have glass-bottom boats, Mm -hmm. uh, so you can go out and see what's underwater without getting wet yourself. You know, thinking of coral uh, and all the wonderful festival of life around coral reefs, how is climate change impacting Fiji uh, as far as its reefs, its marine life, and rising sea level for an island society? Yes, it's certainly front and center on the list of concerns, and no place is immune to climate change. What is distinct about Fiji is that there are 33 different barrier reefs that surround the Fiji Islands. 
800 species of coral versus if you think about the Caribbean, that's about 48 species. So there's a lot of variation and a lot of diversity, reefs in different stages, different depths, different waters that are slightly warmer or cooler. And so there are some reefs that have recently been damaged. For example, in 2016, there was a massive cyclone, Cyclone Winston, that damaged a lot of the islands, and some reefs were buried under sand after Mm. that cyclone. But others are thriving, and so it's really quite local. And for example, Tavuni has some very beautiful reefs. There's an area called the Rainbow Reef, which is in between Tavuni and another island uh, that's very healthy and doing very well. It's amazing to think of an archipelago of over 300 islands, and you said, what, a third of them are inhabited. How big is the spread of islands? It would take you about two to four weeks to travel from by boat from the southern end to the northern end of Whoa. Fiji. And is the typical way for a tourist to get around to take little planes or to take uh, ferries and boats? The major islands have airports, mm-hmm. and then the smaller islands all have the ones that are close to a major island. It's usually a speedboat trip, so 30 to 90 minutes on okay. a speedboat from one of the bigger islands. Yeah. Or uh, you could go by ferry. There are inter-island ferries that are a little slower because they also take vehicles. That's what local people use, and some of them are easy for tourists to use as well. There are also two cruise lines that are local to Fiji that take you up two island chains, the Mamanuta Islands and the Yasawa Islands, which are two archipelagos on the western side of Fiji. And those cruises are very beautiful. So these are cruises that you just take for uh, a number of days out of Suva, the capital city? They go from Nandi, actually, which is where the airport is. Okay. Meenal Hajratwala is the author of The Moon Guidebook to Fiji. Meenal has also written a poetry collection called Bountiful Instructions for Enlightenment, as well as a personal saga. That's called Leaving India, My Family's Journey from Five Villages to Five Continents. She also edits a collection called Out, Stories from the New Queer India. We have a link to her website with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. And, you know, I just have this image of just the perfect paradise beach place just to relax and totally be on vacation. What's your favorite spot in that regard in Fiji, even if you wanted to go to a place that's not as convenient as some of the other places? You know, it's kind of a cliche, but there's a very beautiful beach that was in the Blue Lagoon movies, Mm-hmm. And it's still beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's gorgeous. So it's kind of touristy. It's not really the cool thing to say, probably. It's not a, it's an untouched lagoon. treasure. So if you're but dreaming it about is the, the Blue, Blue lagoon, lagoon, you can have it. Yes, and you've seen it on TV, and Brooke Shields is there in it. And in person, it's just even more stunning. Nice. Minal, thanks so much for joining us and helping us better understand Fiji. Best wishes with your book, The Moon Guide to Fiji. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmora Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help this week to NPR in Washington and KERA Dallas. Minal Hadratwala tells us about her favorite Fijian word in an extra for today's show. You can hear it from our website, ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, 
and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.